Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Venture Stories of Village Global. I'm here today with Scott Page, author of The Model Thinker and other, other books before that. Scott, we know each other from when I was at University of Michigan uh, many moons ago and uh, great to reconnect. Uh, Scott, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, it's uh, great to be here. So Scott, you, you just come out with The, the Model Thinker, but you wrote previous books uh, before then, one about diversity. Why don't you trace a little bit of your intellectual history and, uh, and evolution and what, what is sort of the thread that, that ties it all together? Yeah, so briefly, I was trained as a game theorist from Northwestern. And then I, my first job was at Caltech, and I was sort of like working as a mathematical economist studying game theory, and I get really interested in this field of complex systems. So complex systems are things like economies, you know, traffic, biological systems, anything that has diverse entities that sort of interact and where the whole can be so much more than the, the parts. So the brain is a complex system, a well-functioning team is a complex system. And in that area, one of the things that sort of popped out as just really interesting to me was the fact that um, collective intelligence, you know, in some sense, the way the whole can be more than the parts is by having sort of the right types of diversity interacting in the right way. So I just sort of became just really interested in the topic of diversity from a purely sort of scientific standpoint. What makes, does diversity make systems more robust, more innovative, less robust, less innovative, um, that sort of thing. And so I wrote some you know, somewhat theoretical books, somewhat applied books on diversity. And then my most recent book, The Model Thinker, sort of tries to do the following, sort of says one way we can cope with the complexity of the world is by having a diversity of models that we can apply. So the book really first throws out this sort of, you know, big idea, which is one way to cope with complexity is to come at it through many different formal lenses. And then the book contains a lot of lenses that I think are really worthwhile for, you know, investors, for people you know, involved in, you know, creating startups for people, you know, constructing policy. And then in the end, it sort of takes on a couple of things like the opioid epidemic or and inequality and says, you know, you could read Piketty and say, oh, inequality is all due to this. It's all due to capital. Or you could read a sociology paper and say, it's, oh, it's all due to assorted mating. But the reality is something is like income inequality. It's really a complex phenomenon with many sources. And you kind of want to see it through a bunch of lenses. So that's kind of where I'm at intellectually. And it's been really fun because it's put me out in the policy world, the VC world, you know, also made for just really great experiences with undergraduate students, you know, because they're hungry for ideas. Yeah, your uh, complex system class is a uh, legend at, at Michigan. Um, l- let's touch first on the diversity book, and then we'll get to the, to the models part. So you wrote the diversity book sort of almost a decade ago at this point? Yeah, no, that's right. Like 11 years ago. Before diversity was really, like, well before James Moore, well before sort of like this huge Silicon Valley and, and global, you know, concept. And, and how has that been sort of, you know, writing it early? And, and also, I'm curious, you know, you wrote about sort of the benefits of neurodiversity, cognitive diversity. How have you seen the uh, conversation shift uh, as it relates to diversity in, in, since you've written that book? I think there's been a fundamental shift in the sense that if you go back in the 1950s, 1960s, it was all about from a diversity was framed entirely normatively, like it's the right thing to do. And then in the 90s, the aughts, you started getting people saying it's a demographic imperative, that we're going to be majority minority, and this is something we just have to deal with as a society. And it was still seen as kind of like 
it's the right thing to do, but not necessarily giving you better outcomes. There was still some notion of a trade-off. And when I wrote my book, as well as Jim Sirwicky wrote The Wisdom of Crowds, these are two books that sort of came out and said, wow, if you're really dealing with complex, high-dimensional problems or trying to make you know, forecasts, and it's kind of, one of the things that's kind of ironic is both Sirwicky and I focused on forecasting and predicting requiring diversity. And this was, again, before AI sort of made its predictive turn, right? Neither one of us predicted the importance of prediction, but it was just kind of, um, I think, fortuitous that both of us happened to focus on the importance of diversity and prediction. And that kind of foreshadowed, I think, all this sort of like ensemble learning theory stuff. Like that was going on at that same time. And what we did, I think both of us, as well as other people in this space, Phil Tetlock, other people, is get across the idea that people have limited bandwidth. Even the smartest person has limited bandwidth, limited cognitive capacity. And so to make an accurate forecast, you need a lot of diversity. So what what happened is my book, as well as a bunch of other work at that time, shift, it didn't so much shift the entire debate, but added a third dimension. So in addition to sort of normative reasons and the demographic reasons, there became a flat out bottom line, not reflect your customer's bottom line, but flat out if you're trying to solve a really hard problem, you want people trained in different ways. And it comes out, you know, now, like I was just at a, this, this amazing kind of nonprofit called U.S. Pharmacopoeia, which sets the standards for all the drugs. And we're just talking about hiring, you know, and how, the importance of diversity in hiring. You can look at one graduate program like Michigan State, for example, in genetics, they will, in their advanced genetics course, they focus on the dog. I mean, they just, for whatever reasons, right, they, it's just a, why not? You have to pick some animal. And at Berkeley, if you take genetics, they happen to have a big section on songbirds. Again, you got to pick something, right? But if you're studying diseases, especially, you know, diseases that spread by viruses, there's avian viruses and there's canine viruses. You wouldn't want two people from Michigan State. You wouldn't want two people from Berkeley. You'd want one from each. And so one of the things that's so wild is you start realizing there's now so much knowledge, so much information that you really need people who've lived different lives, trained at different places, had different experiences, and have different interests, if you want to have a wise crowd or a, even a select crowd that's really good at making predictions. But one thing you, you do talk about is it's important for people to not have diversity as it relates to mission. Is that accurate? Or, or you know, alignment? Yeah, oh, no, absolutely. Right. So, if, I mean, if you disagree on mission, then it's going to be really difficult because, you know, I may, I'm going to be proposing things that you know, I want, you're going to be proposing things that you want. And this just going to be like a game of ping pong, right? A little bit of disagreement on mission isn't necessarily bad because it could cause us to, you know, sort of be looking in different areas of the space. There's this wonderful phrase that Stuart Kaufman had that Stephen Johnson popularized it's called the adjacent possible. So for sitting at some solution, you know, we could go in any one of thousands of directions, but what any one person thinks of as the adjacent possible, what's near that solution is going to differ. And so it's it's possible that a little bit of difference in where we might want to go could lead us to have different adjacent possibles. And so then you think of something, and it never occurred to me to think of that thing, and then I think of something. right? So for example, we were talking about, suppose you have to get medicines into um, some new location, right? You know, suppose you're in some country, you haven't been in before, you've got to get medicines around, but those medicines have to stay at a certain temperature. Who might you talk to to figure out how to do it? And then all of a sudden somebody says, what about milk delivery company, right? And then once that idea is in someone's head, then you think about all the different companies that are delivering things, right? And 
that might not have been in my adjacent possible to begin with, but once that's thrown out there, then I can think of all sorts of other things. Totally. And one thing, so it's, to me, to me, it seems obvious that you want, you know, among sort of experts in different disciplines, you know, economists, uh, you know, psychologists, sociologists, you know, uh, et cetera, th- that's great to bring them together and many others. But are, are there sort of elements of, you know, putting aside people's like trained expertise, people's sort of natural inborn cognitive or neurodiversity that's important to bring together? And if so, do we have a good uh, idea of how to, to measure that? Because sometimes people conflate that and maybe they're correct. I'm curious to hear your perspective on that with sort of, uh, you know, racial diversity or gender diversity or, you know, economic, you know, socioeconomic diversity. What, what are your, your thoughts on that? Yeah, so big questions. Let me start with the first part, like, and, and sort of differences in neurodiversity. Let's take just even like the quant, qual, poet, quant distinction, right? There's a lot of startups that may involve, especially now, a lot of high-tech dimensions, but also at the end of the day involve people. There might be some sort of consumer experience and the success of that product may depend on the extent to which it creates new meaning or enhanced meaning in someone's life, right? And so if you want to sort of understand it, you're probably going to need people who are somewhat more qualitative, you know, who are more people who spend a lot of time reading literature, experiencing the world. But the design of the product may depend critically on people who are more quantitative. So simple example, Fred Keaton, who used to work at Harris in the HR department, brilliant man, he would talk about like within the hotel industry, you could have quantitative people figure out like, you know, as a function of how long someone's had a delay in line before they're going to like leave the hotel or be angry or, you know, so you could, you could use big data to figure out what causes people not to come back to the hotel. But the big data isn't going to tell you what interventions you may have to do to keep them at the hotel, right? So suppose you and I are waiting in a long line in Vegas and to check in and, and the the person at the reception can just look and see, boy, Eric and Scott are clearly not happy here. They want to get on the casino floor. So when we get to the front gate, they give us both cotton candy and Celine Dion tickets. <laughs> you know, that isn't going to work, right? But, you know, all that the quantitative person knows is that we're unhappy because of how long we've waited. But you need a qualitative person that's going to be able to say, okay, wait, what experience, what user experience is Scott or Scott and Eric are probably going to want to make them happy. That's probably not going to be Cotton Candy and Celine Dion. So you really need this mix. When you think about identity stuff, now let's think about like, you know, within the people who are trying to understand your consumer base, understand how a product or how a service might add value, people live very different lives. I mean, you know this as well as anyone that, you know, Amazon, Facebook, Google, LinkedIn, even if they didn't know your race and gender and age and ethnicity and religious affiliation and sexual orientation, they could figure it out by the website you visit, the products you buy, and everything else. And because they can, if you invert that mapping, what you realize is that based on who we are, based on our identity characteristics, we're filling our minds and you know, filling our lives with different activities, different experiences. And so you're just going to get a lot of cognitive diversity for free when you bring in identity diversity. And then it's also going to be true that if you're not identity diverse, even though you can be cognitively diverse, there's still some things you're going you're gonna to miss, right? I mean, every company I go into or every organization I go visit, you can feel the culture in a particular way, and yet the people are somewhat unaware of it, right? And for, uh, for people who are sort of intentionally trying to build you know, cognitive and neurodiverse teams, how much of that is sort of based on, you know, can you assess that from personality tests, uh, et cetera? Are, those, you know, are, are any of those accurate, or is it 
you know, am I a quant or a qual? I don't know. Sort of, you know, I, do I sort of have choice in how I, you know, in, engage in that? How much of that is set versus developed? Well, you know, there's some evidence, I think, like, you know, personality types, like Myers-Briggs personality types do, you know, sort of change as you get older. One nice thing is people tend to become more other-focused as they get older, kind of less narcissistic. So things do change over time, right? We can all hope for sort of personal growth. But I think there are some things like, are you, you know, do you learn things by looking at numbers and you learn things by stories? Or, you know, do you like explicit instructions or do you like, you know, more vague, vague instructions? I think those things, you know, they're not hardwired, but I think that people have you know, relatively strong tendencies. In terms of putting teams together, though, I think, especially among successful people, like if you're successful and, you know, you majored in economics at Penn and, you know, you did something else and then you, you know, you were maybe involved in theater there as well. And you see someone who majored in economics at Penn who's in theater who looks like you and grew up in the suburbs like you, you know, same suburb as you outside of Chicago or something. It's really appealing to, first of all, you understand that person really well. And then it's really easy to think, I'm smart, I'm doing well, this person's smart, this person will do well. And that may be true, but again, you know, this sort of, my friend Sheen Levine calls this the siren call of sameness, right? If you do that over and over, you're not going to get into diversity. So you have to kind of push yourself to hire people who are going to, you know, question you and maybe don't look like you and maybe don't think like you and maybe went to different schools than you went to, maybe you've lived in different places than you went to. And again, you can go too far, right, in either direction because it's really it's going to be hard to manage a team if you have 12 people who all speak different languages and trained in different ways. But I think you constantly want to be pushing yourself and pushing your teams towards making sure you've got diversity, right, In again, in the appropriate areas. And that takes wisdom, right, to figure out how to do it. Right. Do you weigh in at all on sort of the whether specialists or generalists will become more important in the future. You know, you obviously you want generalist teams, but does that mean you have a bunch of specialists or what's your, what's your view here? Well, you know, so it's, what's funny about this is like, you can find studies that'll show almost anything, right? So it's hard to tell sometimes, but one place where we do have really good data is in academic research because we've got reason, you know, citations are kind of a reasonable approximation for how important it is. You know, kind of what someone's bringing to the table in terms of, are they specialists like written all papers in one area or are they a generalist? And what you, you know, tend to find is that, you know, you need a certain amount of depth to have anything amazing happen. So you need some specialists, right? But you also need generalists sometimes to connect those specialists. So what people find, and this is, you know, Brian Uzi and Ben Jones at Northwestern have this wonderful work on what they call atypical combinations, where breakthroughs tend to come from people sort of, you know, combining two things, like Kahneman and Tversky, we all know, sort of combined you know, behavioral psychology with economics, right? So if you're, you know, you have people who are kind of deep in one area connecting with people who are deep in another area. But then sometimes you need, and this is Ron Burt's work out of Chicago, you know, people who sort of fill those, you know, structural holes, right? So people who can connect those two sets of people. So, you know, I would say, again, it's a balance. If you have a whole bunch of generalists, you know, it's not likely you're going to go deep. Before getting to the, to, to the models book, I wanted to piggyback off a point you said earlier about, or just now about, uh, you know, you can tell stories looking back from data. I'm curious for your view in the sort of epistemological debate that some sort of Austrians, uh, economists promote that, you know, something like physics uh, or other, you know, sciences are, are clear sort of, you know, deductive sciences where you can sort of look back at how something was formed and um, reason backwards and it'll be accurate. Whereas economic or social phenomena uh, they recommend you can't basically because there's so much data and that you should have a more inductive first principles approach. Do you have a stance on, on that view? 
Yeah, I mean, not a, not a particularly strong one, but I think that I think there are some things in economics that just sort of like you know have to be true. Like you know, there's a total amount of money in society, you know, physical money that's got to go somewhere, right? Or if you're modeling a supply chain, right? You know, there's a and you for let's say tires, right? Every tire has to be in some location at any given moment in time. So there are some physical laws that are going to hold in an economic system, right? There are also some things like when you think about, you know, what's true of a set of predictions, right? You can write theorems. What's true of a set of price offerings? I think, you know, there are some general theorems that hold in economics that can, that can be deduced. But I think when, you, when you're trying to sort of like, you know, predict what's going to happen or unpack what happened with respect to, you know, any one particular event or any one particular market, that's going to be super hard. So the example I always give when teaching this to undergraduates is pull up a graph of, you know, global oil production. It's not a straight line, but it's pretty predictable. There's a couple dips, you know, cases where there were like, you know, wars in the Middle East and stuff, but it generally grows with um, GDP. And that's kind of what you'd expect, right? If you look at oil prices, oh my goodness, you know, it's completely complex, right? Because there's inventories and strategic behavior. And, you know, so in the first case, there's probably something pretty close to a general law about how much oil is going to be produced, right? Not exactly, but you can predict it pretty darn well. But oil prices, you know, that's almost a fool's game to try and predict. It's, it's, I guess people say it's either a fool's game or a genius's game, right? Uh-huh. You've got to be, to be in that market. Totally. Okay, so let, let's get into the into the book. Uh, yeah. I want to sort of articulate one of the you know opening gambits and and hear what you'd edit to that or add to it. So the book sort of calls for a many models view of the world and says yeah. that uh, you know what makes you successful in in high school and and something in college is, is a one model view view of the world, but uh, that was sort of built for for a world with less data, less complexity. You could sort of get away with with one model, but that uh, the world's increasingly become more complex. And now you need to apply uh, many models. And there's evidence that even if a bunch of the models aren't the accurate approach, that combined the average of them will lead to, to better outputs. Uh, what, what would you add or, or edit to that? I think it's nicely said. I mean, I think one thing that one way to think about this is the fine. If you take, think of how a high school physics class is taught, like, First, you learn like force equals mass times acceleration. You get a bunch of homework questions on that, right? Then you learn Boyle's law and you get a bunch of questions on that, right? So you learn a set of laws or a set of models and you have specific homeworks for those. And then all of a sudden on the final, they give you questions, but they don't tell you which model to use, right? And so there's, and so intelligence really comes down to two things. One, finding the right model and then applying the right model correctly. And that's what we think of as like, mastery of a discipline, right? And that's kind of what a discipline is. And if you mess that up, you can end up doing things like chopping down a tree with a hammer. You know, it could be done, but it's probably not the most efficient way. When you look at trying to make sense of complex phenomena, so let's suppose something like we're introducing a new product and we're trying to think about, you know, how many colors to offer and what colors those should be. Well, one thing you could do is you can imagine constructing a model about color preferences, and you could then try and think, what are other items like the thing we're studying, you know, the, we're, the product we're introducing, what are color preferences like there? And you could try and make some sort of prediction based on data and based on similar products. Another thing you might do, though, is you might sort of say, well, a second model, we'd be think of some sort of contagion model where... You know, when I introduce, a, I'm introduce these colors and people are going to kind of buy the colors that they see other people buying, right? Because there's going to be like a peer effect here. 
And if you construct one of these pure effect models, what you end up getting is there's huge positive feedbacks and anything could happen. And so if you take the pure effect model, it would say you might want to, if possible, like if these were sweaters or something, color them at the last possible second, you know, have uncolored sweaters or hats, whatever it is sitting in your warehouses and color them at the last possible second. Cause otherwise you could be left with thousands or millions of orange hats or something. Right. Whereas the first model would tell you, you can predict pretty well whether, or, you know, what, um, sales are going to be as a function of color. Well, then what you do is that by looking at uh, those two models, you then want to ask, okay, what the two models tell me is that my predictability is going to depend on the extent to which demand is, you know, preferences over color are a social process and to what extent preferences over color are more sort of an individual preference thing, right? And then maybe you go out and test some things and but the answer you come up with is going to have implications for your production process, right? But those are just two models, right? One could construct a whole bunch of different models on, you know, preferences over color and they might give you different predictions. They might also give you different sort of ideas about how you might structure your production process, marketing process, all sorts of things, right? So if you think it's the contagious case, you might want to run ads with different colors in it to see which ones are um, taking off. If you find out it's really contagious, you might want to go, you know, what I call in the book, like full Henry Ford and say, you can have any color you want as long as it's black, right? Mm-hmm. And part of the reason for that is if you can't predict color, you don't want to do it, right? The iPhone also, right, only came in black. <laughs> I mean, now it comes in more. So I think that what I'm trying to get people to recognize is that models have a lot of advantages, right? You can bring them to data. They sort of tie you to the mast of logic. But by definition, models are simple. And if by definition, models are simple and the world is complex, you're going to screw things up unless you use a bunch of them. Yeah. Let's jump into a few examples. So let's yeah. first target the investor demographic of which right. we're describing and of which is, is there a listenership. What's a model or two that the VC cohort should, should know, become familiar with that perhaps they're, they're not today? So, you know, let's suppose someone is, you know, just applying sort of a, a standard sort of Black-Scholes pricing model or using sort of just a traditional model, right? And then somebody comes to them and says, okay, we've got this fancy AI model that's using the following data source, right? One thing you could think about doing is you could say, okay, let's just have a horse race between these two models. And if the first model is better than the second new model, well, we're just going to ignore the second model, right? That's a mistake for two reasons. Because a second thing you should check is you could, if you take this AI model with your existing model, it could be that by averaging the two models, you actually do better than by using the first model. So one thing that's sort of surprising to people is that a second model can be worse than a first model, but the average of the two can be better than the first, right? And the reason why is, is that it could be that whenever the first model's high, the second model tends to be a little bit low. And when the first model's low, the second model is more likely to be high. Then you actually end up being better off. A third thing that the second model can do for you in that case, and again, it could be a, a wacky model relying on Twitter feeds or presidential speeches or anything, is that when the two models don't agree, right, it can be super informative. So let me give a more specific example with another type of model. Suppose that you're currently in making forecasts of sales, relying on, you know, past data, you know, and you've got pretty good sort of standard marketing forecast of what sales are going to be. Well, suppose you're introducing a new product or you're, you've got a new feature adding to the product and you just sort of like tweak your existing database model. Another model you could use would be a model that says, well, there's this wisdom of crowds thing where I can have quote-unquote experts or maybe store managers or other people sort of 
make, a, make their own sort of predictions. So they, here the model would be that you're going to sort of sample a population of users. Well, again, if you do a horse race on those two things, you may find out that the experts are better. You may find out that the, your model's better, right? I mean, your sort of econometric model. More likely, though, you'll find that like averaging the two or some weighted averaging the two is better. But people who've done this sort of thing, what they find just like in the first case is that there's a lot of information when the two approaches give you very different results, right? So for example, suppose this, you know, suppose, suppose we're introducing, you know, a new, you know, stereo system or something like that, right? And someone says, and it works off your phone and everybody says, this is, you know, all the projections are really good, but the store managers say it isn't going to work. And they predicted sales are low. So you just go talk to them. And then they say, well, the reason it's not going to work is the interface on the phone is just really kludgy. It doesn't work very well. It's hard to download. And then it's, it's just not clear what button does what because there's not words behind it. Well, that's information that can't possibly be in the regression model, right, in the database model. And so one of the things that just even having two models allows you to do, right, is use one to sort of see the blind spots, right, in the other. So one of the things that's happening right now everywhere is people are using these sort of text-to-data models, right? So you're downloading text, doing semantic analysis, and then sort of trying to see, like, can I use some sort of semantic analysis to see if there's sort of a positive or negative flow here? That's very different from sort of looking at past, you know, value-based data. And again, I, I would never advocate, you know, tossing out one for the other. Instead, I, I advocate a dialogue between the models. What's sort of the criteria for when we throw out a model um, or, or don't accept a model? You know, some models, like, let's say, astrology, for some people are, are wholeheartedly, you know, what they, what they believe in. What is your sort of criteria for when we think, hey, this, there's diminishing returns to applying this model because it's not, you know, it doesn't help? So this is a great question. So there's a wonderful paper by some people at Duke. Jack Sol is one of the authors called The Wisdom of Select Crowds. And they look at a whole bunch of experimental data, and they also look at forecasts by economists over a 40-year period. And one of the things they find is that, like, the best, in the case of the economic data, the best economist in this whole sample is, like, 10% better than an average economist. The second best economist is, like, 9% better. But when you average the two of them, you're 17% better. That's why, like, this book I wrote is called The Diversity Bonus, because you might think averaging 10% and 9% better gets you 9.5% better it actually gets you 17% better. And the reason why is because when one's high, the other can be low, and the other's low, the other can be high. If you look at all that data, and you look at the experimental data as well, what you find is once you get past like seven or eight, right, there's just not much gain. Google looked at, you know, they get 3 million applicants. They looked at like, what's the benefit of having people interview job candidates beyond just sort of doing, you know, sort of some sort of big data filtering. And what they found is that like after four interviews, you're not, gaining much, right? So I think the way to think about this is how much data do you have, right? How sophisticated are the people or the methods you're using to interpret that data? And how many reasonable ways are to look at it? The, the sort of the larger the answer, this, you know, more data, more sophistication, more ways to look at it, the more people you want to use. That's why you need seven or eight economists, right? Less data, fewer dimensions, less of the, you know, and sort of fewer ways to look at it, you probably need more. That's why Google sort of stops it at four. You know, my guess is the answer is never one model. And my guess is it'd be really rare to find it more than 10, right? But I think that, you know, there's probably some sweet spot depending on the problem between like two or five, right? 
but this is something you experiment with, right? The thing that's really wild about this is you don't want to throw out. And I think there's two things that people really need to take away. One is it's not a horse race. If one model is better than the other, the average could still be better than the first. And as a general rule of thumb, um, there's something that Preston McAfee and I both call the not half bad rule, that as long as one model isn't 50% worse than the other, on average, you're probably better off keeping it, <laughs> which is kind of crazy, right? The other thing is, I think that like, you want to constantly be thinking about, you know, can we bring in another model? So for example, you know, I visited the Fed Reserve Bank in New York a bunch of times, and, you know, they have a whole bunch of economists all using sort of these dynamic stochastic general equilibrium models. They don't have sociologists. They don't have psychologists. And you think like, okay, why not, you know, have, have someone there who's just constantly challenging how you think? Totally. I mean, to that point, you know, sort of your point earlier about wisdom of select crowds or mentioning that, I mean, we are sort of having a big debate as a society as to, you know, should there be gatekeepers, you know, uh, say, for example, you know, writing our news or curating our news or, or what is the role of, quote, you know, quote, unquote, elites versus, versus the masses. And, you know, we're also, you know, there's a, a group in the crypto community that is uh, proponing the uh, use of prediction markets. Uh, so, you know, wisdom of the crowds. I, to what extent, like, where are you on this debate versus sort of the, like, wisdom of select crowds on, on one, you know, one side of, you know, experts for all versus, versus sort of the, uh, you know, let the mass, you know, direct democracy for everything, who, you know, who should be fired, what, what policies, you know, we, we enact, uh, et cetera? I think, you know, these are, these are big questions, right? Like, it's, it's in, I think there are things, like, when you look at these sort of economic data, Preston Mac, we also did this, his not half bad rule comes from looking at sort of predictions of, like, who's going to perform well in European soccer contests. I mean, you've got long track records and you can figure out who's good, you know, then it makes sense to go with the experts. So Phil Tetlock has this wonderful book called Super Forecasters. And the reality is there are people who are really good at predicting and there are people who are not so good at predicting. And if you put together teams of people who are good at predicting and you let them talk to each other, you do even better, right? I mean, so it's kind of like one of those things where benchmark super forecasters about, you know, 40% better than normal people. Then you get another 20% better if you sort of train these super forecasters in probability. Then if you have the super forecasters sort of like you aggregate their predictions in the right way, you get another bonus of like 25%. And so you end up with them being just a lot better than, than sort of the average person you draw from a hat. I think, you know, Ted Locke in his earlier book, you know, points out the fact that the people who get a lot of attention aren't people who are thoughtful, reasoned thinkers. They're people who sort of take hard lines. So like, you know, whether you're on the left or whether you're on the right, you know, people who, you know, take strong opinions tend to be not very good predictors, right? I mean, so Tetlock calls these hedgehogs, but people who are like, you know, always taking the right position or always taking the left-wing position, they're, I mean, you might as well just throw a dart. Actually, it'd be better throwing a dart. You know, so when you, and so when you think about this question of like, should we have everybody decide things or should we have people, experts, I think if you get if you could get a large group of people to sit down and really think through it in careful ways, yeah, then there's a lot of things where you probably want to open it up to a lot of people. But the more technical the problem becomes and the less capable people are of really understanding the issue, the more you, you need to go to experts, but you still want to go to a collection of experts. It, one of the models you, you cover extensively in your book is uh, Claude Shannon's information theory. And yeah. The entropy therein. Uh, George Gilder wrote a book called Wealth and Power or, or Knowledge and Power, I think, sort of claiming that, 
that the capitalism and markets are actually a great use case of, of information theory. Are, are you familiar with Gilder's work? Do you have a view on it? And, and it, regardless, what, what sort of misconception do you think people uh, have about Claude Shannon's work and, and how we should understand information theory and entropy? So two things about Shannon that I think that I, I try and highlight all the time. One is, is that because we're all scared of logarithms, we're all taught sort of variance and variation. Variation is a measure of dispersion. So if I said, I've got things between zero and $10 maximized variance, that would put half the weight on zero, half the weight on 10. But if I said maximize entropy, which is a measure of surprise or uncertainty, I would have equal probability of anything between zero and 10. So I have no idea what's going to happen. I think in a lot of cases in terms of business and in economics, it's not variance that we care about. It's entropy, right? Because we care about like the, un- the fundamental uncertainty in the process, not the dispersion in the process. The other thing I think that we miss with entropy, and I think it's just such a beautiful thing to think about, is that one of the things I talk about in the book is Wolfram as this wonderful classification of things that they can either go to equilibrium, they can be simple patterns, they can be random, which would be maximal entropy, or they could be complex. And complex in his definition is somewhere between, you know, a pattern and pure randomness. So when we look at the world, like if you're trained as a, an economist or a physicist, you might think that like everything's in equilibrium. And in fact, like a lot of the models we think of in economics is like supply equals demand, then there's a shock, and then supply equals demand again. But it's perfectly possible, again, like if you look at oil prices, that a system can be in you know, some state of complexity. This is why I got interested in complex systems. Like a system could be complex or like, you know, stock market prices, they could be very close to a random walk. So one of the things that's beautiful about Shannon's work is that by having this measure of surprise or uncertainty, you know, the the entropy measure, you can look at a system and you can say, is this thing ordered? Is this thing complex? Is it fully random, right? And there's some great stuff out there, right? Like there's, just really, Aaron Clause is a physicist, has this great paper basically showing, like, if you're watching a basketball game, you're kind of like watching a random coin flip, <laughs> you know? So we haven't been watching Mark Madness, but it really kind of boils down to people pass the ball around, somebody takes a three-pointer, and it's like, you've got a 40% chance of going in. You might as well be watching people, you know, rolling a 10-sided die, and if it comes up one through four, they get three points, and if it doesn't, they don't get three points. I mean, it's it's within a physical space, but in terms of, like, what actually happens in the game, it's statistically indistinguishable from just watching random conflicts. I mean, it is interesting. Um, one of the things I think you talked briefly about in one podcast was, was basketball. You know, I, I'm a student of, of basketball, and one of the things that's sort of interesting is how the game has evolved, where three-pointers matter so much now, and, and people have been coaching for, for 20 years in the last you know, couple of years. I sort of realized, you know, as though it's obvious in hindsight, oh, it's worth shooting more threes. <laughs> uh, you know, threes are just worth more than twos, right. 50% more, and thus we should sort of re-architect the whole game around that. And that's sort of a secret hidden in plain sight, and I've been obsessed with what are other secrets uh, hidden in plain sight. So I'm curious if that, uh, you know, sparks any, any thoughts for you, or, or another related question is, if you were the GM of a, of a, or president of a basketball team, having your many modeled view of the world, what's, what's a model that you think you'd bring to, the, to your business that you think is uh, underappreciated perhaps by the other owners? So first thing, and the first point, you know, it's funny you bring that up because uh, this book I wrote two years ago called Diversity Bonus, which talks about, you know, theoretically there are all these bonuses in problem solving and prediction and getting at the truth from diversity, but it doesn't mean you just get them for free by throwing diverse people in the room. And so I actually use the example of the three-point shot. And one of the things that I found amazing, like, 
1981 Lakers, which won the title, probably one of the, you know, five to 10 best teams of all time, you know, Magic, Worthy, Kareem, you know, kind of during when Magic was still only two years into the league and Kareem was still, you know, relatively young, like 35 or so. The, uh, they made 13 three-pointers for the year. 13. You know, they knew they were worth 50% more, but they couldn't make them, right? So even though, the, even though it was there, all of their offenses, all of their practice, nothing was done. None of the culture of the team was built around exploiting that, right? A couple years later, like by 83, 84, Magic's taken hundreds of those shots a year himself, right? Because he's, he's practiced it. So one of the things in this whole space about like sort of constructing collective intelligence or, and this is actually one of the things that makes me sort of dubious about data. So let me, let me answer your second question now. I think as we move towards all this analytics, there's a little bit of what I call in the book, big coefficient thinking. Like I've got all this data. So let's find the biggest coefficient and climb that hill. So if I'm trying to improve, you know, children's performance and I find that teacher quality matters, I'm going to ramp up teacher quality. If I found class size matters, I'll ramp up, you know, shrink class size. But that's looking at the data of the world as it is. It could be that there's some whole other way, right, to do education or to structure an offense in basketball, right, that would make different players valuable. So I guess, you know, if you said, how would I apply my models if I were, let's say, you know, a basketball GM, I think one thing I would think about is, I would look at the different valuations of different players in different offensive and defensive schemes and ask, you know, given that there's these salary caps and all sorts of other stuff, I would ask, is it possible we might, you know, choose a different offense, right, or run a different defensive scheme that would make certain players suddenly be of much higher value for us than other players? So, for example, switching sports, when they built the new Tiger Stadium now like 20 years ago, it was super deep right? I mean, it was like a huge field. And I, at the time, as did some other people, thought this was genius because everybody's getting these huge players who hit home runs. And what the Tigers are going to do is they're going to get really fast outfielders who don't hit home runs, but can spray the ball, right? And the big players aren't going to be able to hit it out of Tiger Stadium because it's 440 feet deep, right? So you're suddenly like, you know, you've got this competitive advantage for a certain part, but it turned out, you know, people didn't like losing and people like seeing home runs and they moved the fences in after <laughs> one year. Yeah, totally. Let's end on a couple of more, more applications. What are some models that are not obvious or that people should be more thinking about to help solve collective action problems? When people talk about collective action problems, sometimes people think this is just all about incentives. You've got to get incentives right for people to cooperate. Other times people say it's all about culture. So if you read Freakonomics, you think people are just completely driven by money. But yet you'll hear business executives like Mark Fields or someone like that say culture trumps strategy or Deming supposedly said culture eats strategy for breakfast. I think the reality is when you look at models of collective action or cooperation generally, you sort of see that if the incentives are super, super strong, then you can probably through incentives get cooperation. But if they're not strong, culture is going to dominate. And I think one of the things then that's useful about these models is you realize it just may be too cost. It just may cost us too much money to get the incentives right. And we've really got to work on culture, right? Or you may decide, you know what, it's not going to cost us that much to get the incentives right, because this isn't that hard of a collective action problem. So let's just kind of like, in some sense, pay to make it happen. And I think that, again, this is where rather than one of the points I really try and get across in the book is 
you can't manage, you can't invest, you can't lead by, you know, sort of mantra. You know, you can't say two heads are better than one or too many cooks spoil the broth or a stitch in time saves nine or he who hesitates is lost. Because for every proverb, there's an opposite proverb. So what the models help you do is understand the conditions under when one thing is true and when another thing is true. You know, it's, it's interesting. I'm curious, do you think a many model view also, uh, you know, applies to like outcomes, getting better outcomes. Do you think it should also apply to sort of normative like ethics? Like I have the Kant view, I have the, uh, you, you know, John Stuart Mill view, I, you know, the, these sort of, you know, view, uh, approaches or philosophical uh, lenses that somewhat disagree with each other, but uh, I should take the average of them and that would be a better, better outcome uh, from, a, from a moral ethical perspective. And there's the second question, which is, do, do you have some people, I think it's a silly argument, but do some people make this argument of, hey, you know, I know I get you're sort of evaluating different models, but you should just be quote unquote authentic. <laughs> like whatever your gut says, just go with that. That is sort of the authentic, you know, be yourself instead of like taking from others. How do, how do you respond to those two points? So I think on the, the first one, right, like I think it does make you a more thoughtful, compassionate person just in the sense of let's think of the notion of causality, right? I could construct a model where I think that, that you know, the action you take, you know, you have, you have beliefs about what the outcome is going to be and you took that action and therefore when we saw that outcome, you're responsible, right? From a legal perspective, you can think of that as some sort of like you violated some, you know, doing some tort, right? But in a, if you took a more complexity-based view, you could think that, boy, you know, what happens in a process kind of emerges through the actions of lots of people and no one might be responsible for what happens, right? So I think it gives you a much more sort of compassionate view of the world, right? That like, yeah, maybe you took this action and maybe that happened, but it might not have been, that might not have happened directly because you did it, right? I mean, one of the things I think is so fascinating is when you think of the financial collapse of 2008, Andy Lowe has this great book or great paper on like 13 models of the financial collapse. And like, he basically lays it out really nicely. You read each one of them and it's kind of compelling. And then you read another one, that's kind of compelling. But none of them are fully supported by data. And so you come out of that, I think, really humbled, you know, given especially someone as smart as Andy Lowe, just saying that like, I don't think anybody really knows what happened, right? I mean, I think that there's a lot of sort of compelling stories, but the reality is it was complex and nuanced and there's a lot of models that can possibly explain it. And I think that makes you, you know, probably you know, a better person, right? In terms of like the, I go with my gut thing, right? You know, there's sort of like, uh, people say this all the time, in God we trust, all else bring data. I guess I would say, you know, in God we trust, all else bring data that's supported by models, right? Because data itself can be misleading. You know, you can, you know, I was just looking at a paper the other day by one of my colleagues, where he was, you know, and you, if you run the full regression, it turns out that the number of, you know, that the number of analysts in looking at a, a stock price doesn't really, when you run the forecast, doesn't affect the accuracy of the prediction. And that just doesn't seem to make any sense. But then, if, but that's accounting for the market value of the stock. And so what it turns out is what's really driving the accuracy is that it's a more important stock. And if there's a more important stock, there's more people on it. But in the regression, the more people on it doesn't reveal anything. So if you just look at the regression results, you'd say, oh, putting more people on it doesn't make it more accurate. But the reality is, is that there's more people on it because it's worth more, Right. And so again, data can really be confusing. And so, you know, you need a model. One of the, one of the examples I give in the book that I love is Harry Parsh, one of my former colleagues at Iowa, had this data where the more you paid people to chop down a tree, the fewer trees they chopped down. And so from the data, you'd infer, well, let's pay people very little and they'll chop down a whole bunch of trees, right? 
if you write down a model, you realize what's happening is the person who's setting the price for chopping down a tree is doing it based on how hard it is to chop down the trees. So if it's steep soil, you know, if it's a steep grade with rocky soil, they're paying people a ton of money per tree. If it's flat, sandy soil, right, they're paying them very little. So the number of trees chopped down is inverse to price. But that's not causal, right? What's causal is that the rate is being set as a function of the conditions. So I really think, I mean, yeah, if you're a genius or lucky, you can trust your gut. But I think generally you're better off with data and models. I want to be sensitive to your time. This is my last question. You just for, for the audience, if, if Sequoia Capital or any great uh, venture firm you know, brought you in for six months or a year and said, hey, Scott, why don't you you know, uh, work on whatever model research you want that you think can apply to venture capital and help us make, uh, you know, have better returns. What type of work could you imagine doing or what, what could you imagine your, your focus being? So one thing, I mean, a situation like that, I would imagine that I would learn a ton, right? I think that one thing that I would find really fascinating is I'd like to sort of build on the work of John Hagel and John Seeley Brown at, at Deloitte Center for the Edge of this wonderful thing on the big shift called the big shift, where they talk about how just the speed of business is changing, right? I mean, like the, if you look at just sort of how fast, you know, turnover is in the Fortune 500, how market shares change, everything's changing faster and faster and faster. So one of the things I'd love to do is, you know, again, if you had the time to do it, you know, kind of break that down a bit and see if you could figure out, are there, let's come up with the kind of a complexity measure or even what they'd call a shift measure per industry, would there be ways to figure out sort of how predictable are different segments of the, you know, sort of the economy, right? Because if a segment is not predictable at all, then whoever wins and loses in that area is doing so just by luck, right? But, and so I think it'd be, you know, when someone introducing a new product or a new idea or trying to create meaning in a new space, I mean, we all think we can exercise judgment, but again, like, let's go back to the random walk down Wall Street idea, I mean, or watching a basketball game. In some sense, you just, it's unpredictable for the most part, right? Whereas there may be other domains that actually are quite predictable. So I think, you know, sort of asking just a very basic meta question of which domains are predictable would be something I'd probably start out doing. Yeah, and the the technology one is so interesting because there have been, you know, so few Facebooks that's so hard to uh, hard to pattern match. Yeah, no, and I think and there's people like Yerker Denrell that say that, you know, that, that whoever wins those things is more likely to be lucky than good, right? The other thing I do, which I'd love to do, is like it'd be really fun to sort of look at who is, you know, you know, it could be like your group has tried to put together a diverse group of people to try and make and really work within the community with really smart people to make good forecast of what's going to work. But it'd be fun to sort of try and figure out like who does do well and what pairs of people think about things differently, right? Totally. Uh, yeah, that, that's, that's the village status. Is it, it, the village strategy is to decentralize uh, both this, uh, the, on the investing side and on the support side and you know, have different experts from different fields. So this is uh, eminently relatable. Scott, this has been a fantastic episode. The, the book is The Model Thinker. Also check out uh, the diversity bonus released uh, before then. It's been a pleasure having you on. Thank you for coming to the podcast. Bye-bye. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst. 